Retirement Blues Goodbye, along Wainwright's Coast to Coast Path, a book by Richard Cowley. Chapter 19, Episode 2 Near Robin Hood's Bay, the sky brightened and the occasional sunbeam blazed through the ragged cloud. The sea breeze took on a fresher feel that seemed to deny rain. Each time we attempted to remove our wet weather gear, a squall raced in from the sea, catching us with one leg in and one leg out of our elasticated leggings. Finally, the sun broke through to transform the dismal expanse of flat, lifeless rock that edged the sea into a cheery reef of tropical splendour. The bright periods were short-lived. All too soon the sun was blotted out, leaving a dreary gloom in its wake. In truth, the drab scene didn't reflect my mood. Sure enough, trudging for hours, sweating inside clumsy waterproofs, on feet gone soft in sodden boots, could have taken the edge off the last leg of our journey. Fortunately, those minor discomforts hadn't dampened the spirit or quelled the enthusiastic anticipation at nearing our goal. The daunting prospect of walking so far had long since been forgotten. Robin Hood's Bay was round the next headland. The trek had been Peter's brainchild from the beginning, so I held back to allow him first glimpse of Robin Hood's Bay. The heavens, having rained themselves dry, radiated a pale greenish glow which brightened the tumbled stack of cottages that is Robin Hood's Bay. The ancient smuggling and fishing port is squeezed into a narrow cleft in the rock wall that extends three hundred feet down to the shore. The higgledy-piggledy houses appear to cling limpet-like to the cliff face to prevent them sliding into the sea far below. We entered the village along a narrow cliff-top lane and were greeted by a familiar smiling face. Congratulations! yelled Colleen, leaping into the air. You've done it! Colleen hugged and kissed us, with as much enthusiasm as may have been heaped on the Australian outback explorers Burke and Wills, had they survived their ordeal. We dumped our backpacks in the car boot and set off for the beach. The air was heavy with ozone and the sharp iodine tang of wet seaweed. The historic village was bustling with day-trippers and self-satisfied hikers, all oblivious to the dull, overcast sky. At the waterfront, I was disappointed not to make way for a hardy fishwife humping a wicker creel of fresh herring, or sidestep a crabby old salt heaving his bulk homeward on a whalebone peg-leg after a day on the rum. The tide was well out, leaving a wide expanse of sandy beach to the water's edge. Colleen led us across the sand to complete the symbolic end of our journey's ritual. We strode across the sands, not as Monroe zealots about to cross off another mountain peak from the authorised list of climbs, but as contented Wainwright acolytes, grateful for the opportunity to have followed in his footsteps. At the lapping edge of the North Sea, two mud-spattered trekkers ceremoniously dipped their sodden boots into the water in ritualistic homage to the delights of being. Had Shakespeare's Hamlet made the trek from St. Bees to Robin Hood's Bay, he would have had no reason to ask the question, to be or not to be, for he would have known the answer. The Wainwright's bar in the Bay Hotel was closed, so we repaired to the upstairs bar for a celebratory pint and to set down our comments in the coast-to-coast logbook kept by the publican. I scanned the entries for a message from the Dutch girls we'd met along the way, an address or telephone number. I was rewarded with a procrastinator's trophy of competence, not a dicky bird. 
I resolved then and there to fight a lifetime's habit of putting things off. I'd take a leaf out of Dewdrop's book. I'd plunge into the icy stream and wade across, conscious only of the beauty of life itself. I'd become a free spirit, with the vitality of some of the earlier and rebellious inhabitants of Robin Hood's Bay. In the 18th and early 19th centuries, the people in this little fishing port didn't cater for day-trippers, for at the time they were cagey smugglers. The confusion of lily-putton cottages, sheds and lean-tos let into the cliff face is a warren of cellars, secret passages and lofts, set within a maze of narrow alleyways, tunnels and drains, the perfect labyrinth in which to conceal booty. The locals earned a living hoodwinking the revenue men, disguising their illicit traffic beneath the slippery sham of herring, hake and codfish. Behind merry fishermen's eyes, the running trade honed wits keen. Smuggling was a dangerous business, hardly a trade for the faint-hearted. Not only were the smugglers harried by the powerful customs and excise machine, but they also had to contend with the dangerously unpredictable North Sea. Around the time of the Napoleonic Wars, the running trade's contraband of rum, brandy and tobacco dried up, leaving seamen and their families to face starvation and financial ruin. Gone were the salad days of slurping fiery Jamaican rum or chomping upon the sweetest Virginia tobacco. The tide had turned and flushed in consignment to an altogether different relish. As needs must, the devil makes work for idle smugglers. With raw materials quarried at nearby Little Beck and a local pool of labour desperate for work, the new alum industry was established on the cliff tops to the south of Robin Hood's Bay. Feedstock for the chemical process includes urine. Throughout the land, thousands of tons of urine was collected and shipped to Robin Hood's Bay in heavy-bottomed cargo vessels. On the ebb tide, these sturdy vessels rested secure on the flat slabs of rock at the foot of the cliff. High and dry, the coastal traders were easily serviced and their odious liquid cargo readily discharged. What a come-down for the free-spirited sailors, with their smugglers' sloops and cutters laid up to rot, driven from the open sea where they'd sailed, and slugged the finest spirits the world had to offer, to become shackled factory fodder, sloshing around in reeking vats of human urine. Whilst trudging up the steep climb to our boarding house on the cliff top, the cloud lifted and the sun showed its face. During the ascent we bumped into a very dapper hue on his way to the shore. He'd scrubbed up and presented well in a neatly pressed 1970s safari suit. The hue of Robin Hood's Bay was an altogether different animal to the twitching introvert we'd first met at the Crown and Mitre Hotel a mere two weeks before. The trek had worked its magic on Hugh equally as much as it had on Peter and I. Perhaps he'd resolved the dilemma of working ridiculously long hours, chasing big pay, and would start to live a little more. Champagne and nibbles at six, invited Colleen. Ah, shout. Sounds good, was as much as Hugh's non-committal nature would permit. We left it open, knowing full well he wouldn't appear. It's odd how often summer holiday friends, or for that matter fellow trekkers, will cut loose at the end of all their exploring, and a friendly face is known for the last time. We held our celebration on a grassy verge, overlooking the rooftops of Robin Hood's Bay to the North Sea beyond. Our table was a park bench, where our backs were warmed by the last rays of the evening sun. We presented a picture of stylish eccentricity to many passers-by. 
We laughed with them and delighted in our chilled champagne, duck pate, and slabs of cheese. Wensleydale, of course. All too soon the sun disappeared and the temperature plummeted, a stark reminder that winter was waiting in the wings. Heeding her chilly signal, we headed downhill to the sheltered warmth of a restaurant by the shore. The converted fisherman's cottage retained its thick twisted walls and crushingly low ceiling. It's strange to think that the cottage was in use when the battered armada galleons beat northwards into the gale that had scattered the fleet, shattering the counter-reformation ambitions of the Catholic invader Philip of Spain. Over dinner we learned of Colleen's latest misadventures. On leaving Peter and me in Littlebeck Wood, Colleen ambled back the way we'd come. She was content, in a wistfully daydream-like way, breathing deep the smells of autumn. She engaged the pinched-faced women in conversation, and happily entertained their dog casting the ball into the stream. Colleen had rarely felt more at ease and comfortable with her surroundings. That was until the heavens opened. In an instant she was soaked to the skin and freezing cold. The wet clothes clung so tight to my body that I appeared to be covered from head to foot in Laura Ashley tattoos, she exclaimed. Unpacking the car, looking for dry clothes, was chaotic. When I tried to undress, my clothes were so wet I couldn't peel them off. With the car heater on full, I eventually steam-dried, fogging up the windows. The frosted glass effect gave me some privacy to change, but even so, it was still difficult to undress and dry in the car whilst on the lookout for any peeping toms that might be lurking about. Outside the restaurant, some good-natured revellers called out that a sing-song had just started at the Dolphin Inn. In no time, we were sitting at a corner table in an upstairs room amidst a flock of serious folk-song devotees who may well have been kumbayaring since the 1960s. It must be forty years since I've been in a folk club, Colleen confessed. The sing-along was lively and a blessed relief from the bombardment of TV, pipe grunge and electronic noise from games machines favoured by so many publicans. The three of us were able to sing along as the selection of songs was well-seasoned with old favourites. The entertainment wasn't gratis. Everyone, especially new faces, were expected to do a turn. "'What are the late arrivals going to sing?' inquired the Master of Ceremony. "'I'll give you the Haddon's Heat later,' I replied, from somewhere deep down, more thought than spoken. The champagne, chablis and beer had finally got into the act." The MC acknowledged the commitment with a sideways nod, then introduced the next turn. And so the evening's entertainment moved on effortlessly from one group to another as regulars performed their accustomed pieces. Many hummed the tunes or quietly sang along, filling the room with what seemed at first glance to be a flood of conviviality and good fellowship. After a few songs I'd settled and was more able to observe the goings-on. There was very clear internal fractional groupings, and bitchiness aplenty amongst the folk-song purists and devotees sitting in our corner. At the next table, an aged folk-music patriarch, with an enormous cannonball head crowned with bristling stubble, poured forth the poison of a flouted pedant. Ye gods, not that old chestnut again, he muttered under his breath, but just loud enough for most to hear or dripping with contempt, that's jazz, not folk, and for a fellow folk disciple, whom he had no doubt known for many years, 
No matter how hard she tries, she just can't carry a tune. After each toxic ambush, he adopted a conciliatory demeanour with bowed head and downcast eyes. He quietly sang along, as though his words were salve to his victim's wounds. Aged though he was, he was well aware of his own vulnerabilities. He sat, James Bond style, with his chair back against the wall, safe from a blindside attack. As the evening drew to a close, it appeared I'd been overlooked and wouldn't have to make a fool of myself singing in the company of such staunch folk-song fans. Unfortunately, during the final bracket of songs, I was called upon to strut my stuff. And now, the table in the corner, prompted the compere. The Harren's Heed is a classic Tyneside song in praise of the versatile herring, which until fished out had been a staple foodstuff in Britain and Northern Europe. And the song goes, Of all the fish that's in the sea, the Harren is the one for me. I rue the day, I rue the day, I rue the day, me hinny-o, me hinny-o. And what'll we do with the Harren's Heed? And what'll we do with the Harren's Heed? We'll make it into loaves of breed, Harren's Heed, loaves of breed, and all manner of things. Of all the fish that's in the sea, the Harren is the one for me. The words were well known by those present, and buoyed on by the encouraging, murmured accompaniment, I managed to bellow four verses before coming to an abrupt, heart-pounding, sweaty and red-faced halt in a confusion of forgotten words. I was both embarrassed and amused when the room filled with the thunderous applause and shouts of encouragement, my first and only taste of celebrity's drug. Fame is a fickle fiend. My fifteen seconds of stardom evaporated with the first trill of the next song. Outside the pub, near the beach, Peter was drawn to a signpost that pointed southwards, towards the distant cliff. The sign displayed two weathered words, Cleveland Way. I don't want to stop now, Peter said with deep regret resonating in his voice. I want to go on. I fully understood Peter's feelings. I too didn't relish the prospect of returning to what had gone before. Suburbia holds no draw card for me. Being over sixty years old, with a statistical probability of about twenty more years left to live, both time and life were recognised for the luxuries they are. Nothing was to be frittered away. All was to be invested in living. Back at the digs, I was overcome by what could easily have been mistaken for an acute case of emotional exhaustion, a condition common amongst fellow entertainers and cabaret stars of my age. In this rarefied state, I was unable to fit the key into the keyhole and was locked out of my room. Peter and Colleen, not being artists themselves, blamed my fumbling on the effects of drink. They were quite superior in their offhand manner, until they too discovered they couldn't open their own bedroom door. After several moments ripe with theatrical farce, Colleen did a Sherlock Holmes and solved the problem. Each had been given the other's key by mistake. Good night.